0: Section 4 of Canada, the Empire of the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Canada, the Empire of the North by Agnes C. Lott. From 1600 to 1607, Part 2. Not less disastrous were English efforts than French to colonize the New World. Up to 1610, Canada's story is, in the main, a record of blind heroism, dodged courage, death that refused to acknowledge defeat. 400 French vessels now yearly come to reap the harvest of the sea, in and out among the fantastic rocks of Gaspé, pierced and pillared, and scooped into caves by the wave wash, where fisher boats reap other kind of harvest, richer than the silver harvest of the sea, harvest of beaver and otter and marten, up the dim amber waters of the Sanguinea, within the shadow of the somber gorge, trafficking baubles of bead and red print for furs, precious furs, pont Merchant Prince, comes out with 50 men in 1600 and leaves 16 at Tata Sook, ostensibly as colonists, really as woodloopers to scatter through the forests and learn the haunts of the Indians. Point Grave comes back for men and furs in 1601 and comes again in 1603 with two vessels, accompanied by a soldier of fortune from the French court who acts as geographer, Samuel Champagne, now in his thirty-sixth year, with service in war to his credit and a journey across Spanish America. The two vessels are barely as large as coastal schooners, but shallow draft enables them to essay the upper St. Lawrence as far as Mount Royal, where Cartier had voyaged. Of the palisaded Indian fort, not a vestige remains. War or plague has driven the tribe westward, but it is plain to the court geographer that, in spite of former failures, this land of rivers, like lakes and valleys large as European kingdoms, is fit for French colonists. When Champlain returns to France, the king readily grants to Sieur de Mont, a region roughly defined as anywhere between Pennsylvania and Labrador, designated Acadia. This region, Sieur de Mont, is to colonize in return for a monopoly of the fur trade. When other traders complain, de Mont quietens them by letting them all buy shares in the venture. With him are associated as motley a throng of treasure seekers as ever stampeded for gold. There is Samuel Champlain, the court geographer, there is Pont Grave, the merchant prince, on a separate vessel with stores for the colonists. Pontgrave is to attend especially to the fur trading. There are the Baron de Poincourt and his young son, Biencourt, and other noblemen looking for broader domains in the New World. And there are the usual riffraff of convicts taken from dungeons. Priests go to look after the souls of the Catholics. Huguenot ministers to care for the Protestants. And so valiantly do these dispute with tongues and fists that the sailors threaten to bury them in the same grave to see if they can lie at peace in death. Before the boats sight Acadia, it is summer of 1604. Pontgrave leaves stores with de Monts and sails up to Tadasset. De Monts enters the little bay of St. Mary's off the northwest coast of Nova Scotia and sends his people ashore to explore. Signs of minerals they seek, rushing pell mell through the woods, gleefully as boys out of school. The forest is pathless and dense with June undergrowth, shutting out the sun and all signs of direction. The company scatters. Priest Aubrey, more used to the cobble pavement of Paris than to the tangle of ferns, grows fatigued and drinks at a fresh water rill. Going in the direction of his comrade's voices, he suddenly realizes that he has left his sword at the spring. The priest hurries back for the sword, loses his companion's voices, and when he would return, finds that he is hopelessly lost. The last shafts of sunlight disappear. The chill of night settles on the darkening woods. The priest shouts till he is hoarse and fires off his pistol but the woods muffle all sound but the scream of the wildcat or the uncanny hoot of the screech owl. Aubrey wanders desperately on and on in the dark, his cassock torn to tatters by the brushwood, his way blocked by the undisturbed windfall of countless ages. On and on till grey dawn steals through the forest and midday wears to a second night. Back at the boat were wild alarm and wilder suspicions. Could the Huguenots, with whom Aubrey had battled so violently, have murdered him? demont scouted the notion of unworthy, but the suspicion clung in spite of fiercest denials. All night cannon were fired from the vessel, and bonfires kept blazing on shore. But two or three days passed, and the priest did not come. Monts then sailed on up the Bay of Fundy, which he calls French Bay, and the nearest chance shears through an opening 800 feet wide to the right and finds himself in the beautiful lake-like basin of Annapolis, broad enough to harbor all the French Navy with a shoreline of wooded meadows like homeland parks. Point and Court is so delighted he at once asks for an estate here and names the domain port royal. On up Fundy Bay sails de Monts. Samuel Champagne ever leaning over decks, making those maps and drawings which have come down from that early voyage. The tides carry to a broad river on the north side. It is St. John's Day. They call the river St. John and wander ashore, looking vainly for more minerals. Westward is another river, known today as the St. Croix, the boundary between Maine and New Brunswick. Duchesne Island, at its mouth, seems to offer what to a soldier is an ideal site. A fort could command either Fundy Bay or the Upland Country, which Indians say leads back to the St. Lawrence. Thinking more of fort than farms, demont plants, his colony on St. Croix River, on an island composed mainly of sand and rock. While workmen labor to erect a fort on the north side, the pilot is sent back to Nova Scotia to prospect for minerals. As the vessel coasts near St. Mary's Bay, a black object is seen moving weakly along the shore. Sailors and pilot gaze in amazement. A hat on the end of the pole is waved weakly from the beach. The men scarcely believe their senses. It must be the priest, though 16 days have passed since he disappeared. For two weeks, Aubrey had wandered, living on berries and roots, before he found his way back to sea. Here, then, at last, is founded the first colony in Canada, a little palisaded fort of seventy-nine men, straining longingly eyes of the sails of the vessel, gliding out to sea, for Pontgrave has taken one vessel up the St. Lawrence to trade, and Point Court has gone back to France with the other for supplies. The island was a little bigger than a sand heap. No hills shut out the cold winds that sweep down the river bed from the north, and the tide carried in ice jam from the south. As the snow began to fall, padding the stately forest with silence as of death, whitening the gaunt spruce trees somber as funeral mourners, the colonists felt the icy loneliness of winter in a forest chilled their hearts. Cooped up on the island by the ice, they did little hunting. Idleness gave times for repinnings, scurvy came, and before spring half the colonists had peopled the little cemetery outside the palisades. DeMont has had enough of Saint Croix. When Pont Grey comes out with forty more men in June, De Mont prepares to move. Champlain had the preceding autumn sailed south seeking a better site, and now with DeMont he sails south again far as Cape Cod, looking for a place to plant the capital of New France. It is amusing to speculate that Canada might have included as far south as Boston if they had found a harbor to their liking, but they saw nothing to compare with Annapolis Basin, narrow of entrance, landlocked, placid as a lake, with shores wooded like a park, and back they cruised to St. Croix in August to move the colony across to Nova Scotia, to Annapolis Basin of Acadia. While Champagne and Grey volunteer to winter in the wilderness, Desmont goes home to look after his monopoly in France. What had Desmont to show for his two years' labor? His company had spent what would be $20,000 in modern money, and all returns from fur trade had been swallowed up, prolonging the colony. While Champlain hunted moose in the woods, round Port Royal and Pontgrave bartered furs during the winter of 1605 to 1606, de Mont and point Court and the gay lawyer Marc Le Carbeau fight for the life of the monopoly in Paris and point out to the clamorous merchants that the building of a French empire in the New World is of more importance than paltry profits. De Mont remains in France to stem the tide rising against him, while Poincourt and Le Carbot sail on the Jonas with more colonists and supplies for Port Royal. Noon, July 27th, 1606, the ship slips into the basin of Annapolis. To Le Carbot, the poet-lawyer, the scene is fairyland, the silver flood of the harbour motionless as glass. The wooded meadows dank with bloom, the air odorous of woodland smells, the blue hills rimming round the sky, and against the woods of the north shore, the chapel spire, and thatched roofs and slab walls of the little fort, the one oasis of life in a wilderness. As the sails rattled down and the anchor dropped, not a soul appeared from the fort. The gates are bolted fast. Jonas runs up the French ensign. Then a canoe shoots out from the brushwood, paddled by the old chief, member two. He sangles back to the watchers behind the gates. Musketry shots ring out welcome. The ship's cannon answer, setting the waters churning. Trumpets blare, the gates fly wide, and out marches the garrison, two lone Frenchmen. The rest, despairing of a ship that summer, have cruised along Cape Breton to obtain supplies from French fishermen, whence, presently, come Pontgrave and Champlain, overjoyed to find the ship from France. Pointcourt has hogshead of wine rolled to the courtyard, and all hands fitly celebrate. When Pontgrave carries the furs to France, Marc Le Carbot, the lawyer-poet, proves the life of the fort for this, the third winter of the colonists in Acadia. Poincourt and his son attend to trade. Champlain, as usual, commands, and dull care is chased away by a thousand pranks of the Paris advocate. First, he sets the whole fort a-gardening, and Baron Pointcourt forgets his nobleness long enough to wield the hoe. Then Champagne must dam up the brook for a trout pond. The weather is almost mild as summer until January. The woods ring to many a merry picnic, fishing excursion, or moose hunt. And when snow comes, the gailless Cabot, along with Champlain, institutes a new world order of nobility, the order of good times. Each day, one of the number must canter to the mess-room table of the fort. This means keen hunting, keen rivalry for one to outdo another in the giving of scumptious feasts. And all is done with the pomp and ceremony of a court banquet. When the chapel bell rings out noon hour and workers file to the long table, there stands the master of the revels. "'Napkin on shoulder, chain of honour around his neck, truncheon in his hand. "'The gavel strikes, and there enter the Brotherhood, "'each bearing a steaming dish in his hand. "'Moose hump, beaver tail, bear's paws, wild fowl smelling luscious "'as food smells only to out-of-doors men. "'Old chief member two dines with thick whites.' Crouching round the wall behind the benches are squaws and the children, to whom are flung many a tasty bit. At nighttime, round the hearth fire, when the roaring logs set the shadows dancing on the rough timbered wall, the truncheon and chain of command are pompously transferred to the new Grand Master. It is all child's play, but it keeps the blood of grown men coursing hopefully or else Le Carbot perpetuates a newspaper, a handwritten sheet giving the doings of the day, perhaps in dogged verse of his own composing. At other times, trumpets and drums and pipes keep time to a dance. As all the warring clergymen, both Huguenot and Catholic, have died of scurvy, Le Carbot acts as priest on Sundays and winds up the day with cheerful excursions up the river, or supper spread on the green. The lawyer's good spirits proved contagious. The French songs that rang through the woods of Arcadia, keeping time to the chopper's labours, were the best antidote to scurvy, but the wildwood happiness was too good to last. While Lescarbot was writing his history of the new colonies, a bolt fell from the blue, instead of de mont's vessel there came in spring a fishing smack with word that the grant of acadia had been rescinded no more money would be advanced poincourt and his son beincourt resolved to come back without the support of a company but for the present all took sad leave of the little settlement poincourt champlain le carbeau and sailed with the Cape Breton fishing fleet for France, where they landed in october sixteen oh seven. Cartier, Roberval, La Roche, De Mont all had failed to establish France in Canada, and as for England, Sir Humphrey's colonists lay bleaching skeletons at the bottom of the sea. End of section four recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver BC